to be specific as to my notes. I'm still... <laughs> what? <laughs> That's what I wrote. <laughs> what? listening to film kids giant squids and other things that think they're deep i'm Lindsay, and i'm brooke and this week we're talking about eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and the memoirs of a teenage amnesiac jesus i got through it all <laughs> i didn't forget any get it huh forgetting huh huh <laughs> i'm so good at i jokes. would have forgotten some <laughs> <laughs> oh brooke brooke wait we didn't do 127 hours oh we almost forgot huh this is casual banter. 127 hours with an ilm kid. We are recording this pre-election night. In semi-politics related news, it's Jared Kushner, but is politics- What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, he's politics. Is he film? What, what did he do? Damn it. <laughs> so he said some problematic things, as he does. Of course he did. <laughs> So, I don't know if you saw it, like, he on Fox News said that black people just need to, quote, want to be successful, end quote. Oh my god, why didn't anyone think of that before? And obviously, people got upset, and Spike Lee, who, if you don't know, I highly recommend you go watch his stuff, he's an incredibly talented filmmaker. I personally recommend Black Klansmen and Do the Right Thing. His newest film is Defy Bloods, which apparently is really good. I haven't seen it yet, but it has... Nothing but rave reviews and Chadwick Boseman's in it, so go watch. So Spike Lee went on the Joe Madison show and spoke his mind, and I'm just going to read out part of his quote because it's A+, and I love Spike Lee and everything that he does. So here is this quote. Look, I'm so tired of white folks telling us what we need to do. How could this guy, how could this punk ass say what black folks need to do? It's like there wasn't 400 years of slavery, systematic racism. We can go on, list, 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 list up. We want everything that all Americans want, but this thing has been set up so we can't get there. And that's what this election is about. So for this guy to say that black people, that we don't want to succeed Hey, let him come to Brooklyn talking that. Let him come to Harlem talking that mess. Please take Jared Kushner down all the way, even though I feel like a toddler could take him down, but like... This is Editing Lindsay. In a post-election update, Jared Kushner can fuck off. And as someone that works in politics, we still have a lot more work to do. So if you can help in any way, whether through donations or phone banking or anything for John Ossoff's or Raphael Warnock's campaign, then I'd be fucking indebted to you. And so would anyone hoping to do anything productive in Congress and editing, Lindsay. But next up in racism news, I have an update for the Ray Fisher, Joss Whedon, Justice League drama. So if you haven't been following this, Ray Fisher, who played Cyborg in the Justice League 2017 film that was directed by Whedon after he took over from Zack Snyder. It all kind of started off back in July when Fisher tweeted out an official retraction to everything positive he said about Joss Whedon at the 2017 Comic-Con panel. And then a few days later, he followed up saying that, quote, Joss Whedon's onset treatment of the cast and crew of Justice League was gross, abusive, unprofessional, and completely unacceptable. Oh my god. In the kind of following weeks, he continued to tweet out accusations not only against Whedon, 
but former DC president Jeff Johns and producer John Berg. I forgot DC was a thing, and I was like, DC Comics, and I was like, former DC president. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you mean the mayor? (laughs) Fisher claims that both Jeff Johns and producer John Berg enabled Whedon's behavior. These kind of tweet accusations died down or seemingly died down in the beginning of September when Warner Brothers put out a statement saying they had been investigating these claims for a while, but that Fisher hadn't been responding to their investigation. Fisher responded putting out a statement saying that, well, yes, he had been contacted by the investigator, but the investigator contacted him personally and he didn't feel comfortable speaking on the phone without his rep like on the line and that's where they had left as they were scheduling a call where everyone could be on the line and then he did an interview with Forbes that dropped the end of October in this interview he calls out again Jeff Johns and John Berg for cultivating a racist environment behind closed doors long before Whedon was brought on that allowed for a lot of the things that happened And he says that, quote, the erasure of people of color from the 2017 theatrical version of Justice League was neither an accident nor coincidence. According to Fisher, his role was diminished and several other roles held by people of color were either also diminished or cut entirely from the film. Wow. A representative of Whedon responded to the article saying these decisions were made before Whedon was even brought on, that it wasn't his choice. But it is important to note that the characters that the article and Fisher mentioned as being cut are all going to be in the Snyder cut that's being released next year. So whether it came from Whedon or the studio, it clearly wasn't part of Snyder's vision, although he is getting a four-hour movie. But also, like, Whedon didn't, like, I'm sure he had the original content and then came in and didn't say anything. But yeah, but if the studio is demanding these changes get made... Sometimes the directors kind of have their hands tied. That's fair. I'm sure Joss Whedon would have had some sway had he really wanted to. Fisher also says that he was told that Whedon had ordered the complexion of an actor of color be changed in post because he, quote, didn't like the color of their skin tone. Wow, I'm sorry you can't light black people well because you never took the time to learn how to. (laughs) Again, this was completely denied by Whedon and that quote has been since removed from the Forbes article. The representative says that the person who told Fisher this was wrong and not saying that Fisher wasn't told this but that he didn't have the right story from the person who told him and saying that Whedon and Snyder used the same colorist and they took great strides to make sure the films like the footage that Whedon shot matched exactly to Snyder's because Snyder used actual film whereas Whedon did all of his shooting in digital so they had to work to reconcile the two different formats to make them look the same. Regardless of whether or not the post-production thing was true or what that is, Fisher maintains that race was just one of the issues with the reshoot process and he says that quote there were massive blow-ups threats coercion taunting unsafe work conditions belittling and gaslighting like you wouldn't believe end quote oh my god and that's kind of where we are with it the warner brother investigation is still ongoing what were like some of the things that happened 
A lot of Fisher's tweets were just kind of vague, just saying that Whedon was creating this unsafe work environment. Maybe he'd get in trouble for saying. Yeah, especially now that there is an investigation, he can't really be too yeah. specific. In the Forbes interview, he says, like, once the like investigation has been closed, I will be coming forward with specific details. He did tweet out saying that Jeff Johns had called him into his office after he and his agent tried to take his complaints up the proper chain of command. Jeff Johns supposedly told Fisher that he could end his career, that he was going to come after his career if he continued to behave this way. So fucked up. Yeah. Uh, Whedon doesn't have, like, a stellar reputation. People really don't think he's a great guy. Like, in a way that, like, it's not surprising. Yeah. Jason Momoa did support Fisher's claims when he was making his initial tweets being like, and the people that allowed this environment to happen should also be held accountable, referring to people mm-hmm. like Jeff Johns and John Berg. I was just gonna say, I hope they can, like, I don't even know what happens. Well, yeah, I mean, Jeff Johns is no longer, he stepped down from DC, and obviously Whedon isn't involved in the Snyder Cut. I think generally Zack Snyder's version was always seen as more like had more diverse characters so hopefully the snyder cut better received all around hopefully that and hopefully these people can't go to other sets and like do the same shit (laughs) yeah i mean joss whedon's gonna but like i i don't know like (laughs) legally or like employment practice wise how you do that i guess you just ruin someone's reputation so people don't want to work with them i don't yeah i don't think there's any like legal precedent to be like this man can no longer work fucking ruin them let's go But now we're going to get to some slightly better news and talk about some trailers. But first (laughs) is a trailer for a project that I'm absolutely not going to watch. It is Songbird. Songbird is the Michael Bay produced thriller about COVID. (laughs) The trailer alone, which is like, I don't know, four minutes, gave me anxiety. I could not. I'm going to watch it because like, you know, you know, when you're like, today's a day where I can handle just being more sad. No. I'll watch it on one of those days. (laughs) That's not its goal. People are calling it like a modern exploitation film, which I'm not going to get to what that is. Just wait until our Breakfast Club episode. The plot is that it's COVID-23. There has been a lockdown for I think it was like day 215. There's, like, a militia plot line. There's this guy who... There's, there's just a lot going on. Okay, like, same. Welcome 2020 I election. <laughs> I don't like it. And then it's, like, you take your temperature with your phone every day, and if you get a fever, they come and find you. Oh, that would be so convenient. Right? I mean, I have, like, I a mean, like, I don't want people to find me, but, like, wow, that would be so convenient. <laughs> <laughs> this movie is, like, an anti-maskers prediction of what's gonna happen. You know? Yeah. And it just, like, I don't need to watch that. And also the fact that it was filmed in lockdown. If I wanted to be a QAnon person and view the world, I would simply do that. I don't need to watch this movie. Yeah, let me just, especially because it was filmed in LA, I'm like, let me just open my door. (laughs) (laughs) Let me peer out into the world, (laughs) except with better tech. Okay, but like straight up, the National Guard was in tons of cities. The National this Guard was like, here. Like, it was like already... a block from my apartment. They had their like millions of trucks. It was very alarming. But anyways, moving on to what I will be watching is Mank. It's coming to, onto Netflix. It will be in select theaters in November. But who the fuck is going to theaters? <laughs> so Mank is directed by David Fincher off of a script from his late father, Jack. Aw. 
I didn't know it was doing stuff. Yeah, it stars Gary Oldman and Amanda Seyfried and others. It's about Herman Mankiewicz, who co-wrote Citizen Kane with Orson Welles. And it's shot to mimic the era of when it takes place. So it's shot to look like a 1940s movie. Oh, that's cool. Also, the soundtrack is by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Hell yeah. Using only period authentic instruments. (gasps) Oh my god. Like, sign me up for the <laughs> So is it, like, movie. big band-esque? From what I heard Ooh. from the trailer. Ooh. <laughs> uh, Hollywood loves a self-referential movie, so without a doubt, this is gonna go up for a million Oscar noms, so if you wanna understand what's on the ballot, I'm telling you now, this is gonna be down the ballot. And also, it's on Netflix. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. My shitty tweet summary is, A man attempts to run away with a figment of his imagination only to forget it ever happened. Mine is, Elijah Wood looked at his own love life and said, quote, I want to make an environment so toxic. But it's going to be like, Elijah Wood looked at his own love life and said, and that's going to be like the picture. I know that we're not actually tweeting these out now that I say it, but that's like in theory what it would be. Eternal Sunshine was directed by Michael Gondry and with a script by Charlie Kaufman. Kaufman also wrote, like, Adaptation and Becoming John Malkovich, so he's, like, known for his, like, mind-bending stories. Eternal Sunshine was nominated for two Oscars, and it won for Best Original Screenplay. Some fun fact about the development of this movie. The concept came from... Conversations between the director, Michael, and his friend, Pierre Bismuth. So Pierre had this idea of erasing certain peoples from your mind when a friend was complaining about her boyfriend and he asked her, would you erase your boyfriend? And she was like, absolutely, 100%. Get him gone. And so originally, he just had this idea for an art experiment, which was he would send cards to random people saying someone they knew had erased the card's recipient from their memory. Imagine if he went through with that idea. Like, imagine opening your mail. Uh, I'm upset that he didn't. The movie starts with Joel waking up. He goes to his car and sees that it's been damaged. And he assumes it's the car parked next to him. And writes, thank you. Like, like a very passive-aggressive. Which, like, from him would be passive-aggressive, but from the car next to him. Like, yeah, like, who had nothing to do with it. It's just, like, getting down to the car and just seeing, like, a thank you note. And they're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Because in theory, they don't even know, like, they might not even know that his car was wrecked. So yeah, he ditches work and takes a train out to Montauk. He doesn't really know why he's going to Montauk. He just was like, you know what, fuck work today, I'm going to Montauk. So he meets Clementine on the train when she tells him her name. She says, don't make fun of it, like, don't sing the song. And he's like, I don't know the song. They end up getting off at the same station and he drives her home and she invites him up for a drink and tells him to drink because it'll make the whole seduction part less repugnant excuse me also just like as a concept like i understand that like quote unquote they knew each other so like he picked her up at a party and not actually on the lure but imagine picking up someone on the lirr i hate that you just called it the lure is that a thing that people (laughs) do uh 
It's a thing that I do. I'm sure some <laughs> other people did. The lure. Joel does not stay at Clementine's. He goes home, but then immediately calls her. They make plans to see each other the next night, and they go out on the frozen Charles River. Then Joel drives them both back to Clementine's apartment, and Clementine asks if she can go over to Joel's just to sleep, which I cannot relate to at no. all. In what situation is, like, sleeping in your own bed not all that you want when exactly. you're like, I'm never like, oh, my bed is literally just upstairs, or I can trek across to this guy's apartment that I've never remembered sleeping in his bed before, so I don't even know if he has, like, more than one pillow, because a lot of guys don't. They have, like, a pillow and a half, and you're like- Oh my god, oh my god. Why? Like, who- And they're like, you can sleep on me, and I'm like, no, I fucking can't! No, you're not <laughs> I don't want to sleep on you, I want a pillow! Like, ugh! Why would I ever want to do that? <laughs> Clementine goes inside to grab her toothbrush, and some guy, who we later learned is Patrick, walks Elijah up- Elijah Wood. <laughs> who, like, what is Elijah Wood doing now? I, like, associate him with Shia LaBeouf, as I associate J.K. Simmons with Michael Keaton. I was gonna- I would understand Daniel Radcliffe. No. They look exactly the same, are you kidding me? Okay, they, like, look the same, but, like, his vibes are more Shia LaBeouf. Current Shia LaBeouf? Eddie Shia LaBeouf. I was just gonna say what he's up to is like jogging only in underwear and socks and sneakers. <laughs> is that not an Elijah Wood mood? <laughs> anyway, some guy we later learned is Patrick walks up to Joel's car and asks him what he's doing there. Obviously, Joel doesn't know who he is. And then we cut to Joel later crying in his car. And now it's been like 10 minutes into this movie, and this is when we get the opening credits, which like isn't important. I just think that's <laughs> odd. Joel takes the drugs and gets ready for bed. And then we get the flashback of Joel at Carrie and Rob's place where he sees the card that Clementine has erased Joel from her memory. And as he's looking at this card, Clementine's name disappears. The day you break up with someone. Like, literally a fucking power move. Yeah. Especially because, like, they seem really busy, so obviously she got, like, somehow got a last-minute appointment. Or planned it, like, months in advance. That would be a real of, like, power waited. move. <laughs> I'm planning on breaking up with my boyfriend in six weeks, so I'll make the appointment for six and a half weeks. <laughs> he goes to the memory office, and he meets with the doctor and learns that, no, it's not a scam. Clementine has erased him from her memory. He kind of, like, sits on this and, like, processes how that she had to be so upset that she didn't want to remember him anymore. And then he goes back and he says that he wants to have it done as well. So he empties his home of all of Clementine's things and things that would remind him of her to get his brain mapped. Including a stuffed skeleton, which, A, how do I become that type of ex? And B, <laughs> who is she, Phoebe Bridgers? Equally, how does this work with, like, STDs? Like, if someone gave you, like, herpes? Yeah. And then they, like, call you. Do you just not remember? Do you not know how to call? Do you tell, like, the company? Do you even remember that? You would definitely tell the company. But, like, do you remember that you ha that you did this with this company? No, because they, they talk about, like, when Mary sends things out, she's like, you don't remember me, but... So, like, if you just, like, got tested and then it came back, if you were just, like, I don't know how I got this STD. Who would you eat? Like, you, I, it would never make it back to anyone. Nope, it would not. There's a lot of problematic aspects. Do they have these same memories, but this person is just removed? 
or are they all completely gone? Like, what if you dated someone for six years? Like, are you just like, why is six years of my life gone? Or are you like, like I'm 23 now? Removing their dog. Like, you see your dog every day. (laughs) For years. Yeah, for like... (laughs) For like A really long time. (laughs) There must be some way to like... Only erase the part, like, like remember like, still that have you, your like, life go on. Yeah, because Mary still continues to work for him, and if yeah. she had unless to... she started as seemingly a new person, like she was like, "Hi, I'm applying for this job," and everyone no, because everyone at the company would have had to pretend that that didn't happen. Yeah, no, she definitely was like still just working there. So he's in his home and like asleep, and the memory deletion part starts happening. And this is probably the good time to talk about the director Michael Gondry's vision for this movie. So he wanted essentially these moments of dreamlike logic and whimsy to be almost understated. The movie employs a lot of what's known as practical effects, which, as the name suggests, just basically means instead of using CGI or post-production, they would do things in camera or physically, whether it's just like a camera trick or a way of cutting so they wouldn't have to use editing CGI. But they, when they did use CGI, it's almost always understated and a lot of it is very easy to miss. For example, this next sequence, this memory where Clementine comes home at 3am and admits that she drove home drunk and wrecked Joel's car. Joel chases after her. And as you see Clementine walking away from Joel, like, on the street and he's in the car, she only has one leg. (laughs) Most people would miss that. In fact, they had it just that at first, but nobody saw that. So that's when they kind of made it a longer shot and they added the car falling to really be like, this is a dream world, shit's gonna go down. So she only has one leg and the next shot is Joel, like, walking up the street, and it's kind of this, like, inverted mirror shot where, like, no matter which way he walks, he ends up at the beginning. And that also is used, like, CGI, but in general, like, the CGI moments were very kind of integrated naturally and not these huge moments. Another big part of this movie was the documentary style of shooting. So Gondry, he really only wanted to use available light for the shoot, which... He didn't want to bring, like, a bunch of lights in. The cinematographer really didn't like that because (laughs) why would he? (laughs) Instead, what the cinematographer kind of came up with was kind of lighting the rooms versus lighting the actors and would put extra light bulbs around the set to increase the available light that he could work with. That's so funny. (laughs) There was also minimal rehearsal and next to no marks for the actors, and anything Jim Carrey does is going to involve a lot of improvisation just because it's Jim Carrey. So the camera operators really didn't know where the actors would be in any given scene at any given time, which meant a lot of this movie was actually shot with handheld cameras. They used two handheld cameras, which would cover pretty much the entire scope of the scene, avoiding each other, obviously. (laughs) And they would run these continuously. They would capture everything. 
And that also added to that documentary style realism of the film. I love the idea of like being a camera person and just being like, you're just gonna have to, like, we have no cues. You're just gonna have to do everything because Jim Carrey. Like, I feel like I would have a deep seated hatred for him, regardless of like anything else, just being like, you make my job impossible. As he's running after Clementine, he starts hearing Mark Ruffalo's character, Stan. Stan and Patrick are talking, and Patrick says that he fell in love with Clementine the night they erased her memories. And Stan is just like, she was unconscious, dude. Like, the fuck? But, quote, she was beautiful. No. And then he's like, I stole her panties. Which, first of all, don't call them panties. Gross. (laughs) Second, don't steal people's underwear in general. So Stan seems to be really upset by this. And then like five seconds later, he and Patrick are just laughing about it. We go to another memory and Joel and Clementine have that argument at the flea market where Joel tells her that she's ready for kids. She couldn't take care of one. And they fight. Then at the apartment, Mary comes over. Patrick talks to Clementine on the phone. In his memory space, Joel hears this and tries to see who's talking and goes back to that bookstore and tries to turn him around and it's the back of his head first, like, twice. That shot always, like, any of, like, the faceless shots, like, that really freaks me I out. I hate face shit. That's, like, I feel like that's why Slenderman really gets me because I'm, like, I hate things without faces. I don't know why. <laughs> Also, all these co-workers are way too fucking close with each other. Two of them live together, and then the other two were dating, and then there's the whole thing with the boss that we're not even going to get into, but I'm pretty sure only the four people fucking work there. Yeah. They're all too close. They're all way too close. So then, on the phone, Patrick calls her Tangerine, and that alone, I hate who- And then, like, immediately after, in the memory, Joel calls her Tangerine, and then is like, wait, how did he know to call you that? And starts putting pieces together. At the apartment, Stan and Mary get high and dance on top of him. (laughs) Which, like, beyond unprofessional. Like, fine, like, have a beer, I guess, while you're doing it. But, like, to get high and to start undressing. Yeah, he's not gonna know, but it's just weird and uncomfortable. How many other times has this happened? It's bound that at least one person might remember Yeah. Especially because I can't imagine that you're doing this correctly. (laughs) Patrick at Clementine's apartment gives her the necklace that Joel had bought for her as that apology gift before he found out that she erased him. And she loves it. She's like, I've never dated someone that, like, buys me jewelry I like. But you did. (laughs) So, equally, do we think that Joel is the first person that she erased? And actually, all of her jewelry is bought from people she was dating that she likes, but just erased all of them and was like, I don't know where this jewelry came from, but it sure as hell wasn't a fucking man. Well, no, because she wouldn't keep it. She would have to give it up if it was a gift. Oh, that's fair. So. So she just wouldn't remember any of the Yeah, she wouldn't remember any of the jewelry. Gotten. She wouldn't ever remember any jewelry that she's been given if she erased someone else. So then, in the memory space, Joel and Clementine are under the blanket, and Clementine's, like, talking about her insecurities, and Joel, like, begs to keep that memory. And then we get that memory of them on the river, but it disappears, and he starts screaming like he wants to call it off. Forgetting the entire beginning of this fucking movie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Like, you just experienced all the shitty parts. (laughs) 
Mary and Stan are, like, even more naked and still dancing. (laughs) Joel attempts to run with Clementine. They're running through Joel's memories, and Joel puts it together that Patrick is using Joel's and Clementine's memories to become him, almost. If you have, like, this entire knowledge of, like, being able to- I don't know what all he knows. Oh, he ha- he has the description of, like, their tapes of each other. Like, why are you like, ah, yes, this is desirable. This entire relationship yeah. is what I like, want exactly. <laughs> I know, like, I, I can understand, like, being like, oh, yes, like, this is how it starts well. But, like, where does he think it's gonna go? <laughs> She literally went and erased him. Clearly this didn't work out. (laughs) And not even like, okay, I'll learn from Joel's mistakes. Yeah, it's not like, oh, here's where he went wrong. I won't do that. It's just like, no, I'm going to do everything that he did. Including give her the gift that she (laughs) never even got. the same tricks from the stalker book. (laughs) So in the memory, like... Joel's telling Clem what's going on, and she says, well, you should just wake up. And he's just like, oh, like, it's that easy. And then it and kind the of is that, that easy. this concept to a memory. <laughs> Clementine tells Joel to take her to a memory where she doesn't belong and they can just hide there. And so they go into Joel's childhood memories. They start on that rainy day one, and then they go to the kitchen where he's four and hiding under the table. And this Aww. is another <laughs> practical effect. This scene... Didn't use CGI to make Jim Carrey look small. It's a force. Oh, so it's pers- like where they have like the the rooms that yeah. like you look like you're going really far back, but you take like three steps. Yeah, I love those. Yeah, it's they a force perspective set they use, so it would be all in camera. So yeah, he is upset because his mom is ignoring him, and then Clementine comes in and flashes a four year old her crotch. Uh- <laughs> Which is very strange, but okay. I mean, like, I guess I understand at the beginning thinking that, like, he still is this, like, cognizantly, like, the same person. But then it becomes very obvious that, like, he is also, like, the four-year-old and, like, still continues to do weird sexual things. Yeah. Back in the apartment, Mary and Stan have had sex and now see that the alarm is going off for Joel, that he has stopped racing and is off-map. And Mary suggests that he needs to call Howard, so he does, and Howard comes over and is able to find the memory and get him back on track. And as he does, Joel is like a baby getting a bath in the sink, and Clem disappears and he goes under the water. And the deletion process continues again, and Joel and Clem start running, and she tells him that he needs to run into humiliation, so then we get several weird humiliating memories. One where he's a furry? (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's masturbating and his mom walks in that doesn't work so then his next humiliating memory not only masturbating he's masturbating to like animal people with boobs that that he he drew drew. himself (laughs) (laughs) i don't think he was humiliated by that like his mom didn't see what he was looking at it was literally just oh my mom saw me masturbating yeah he has no shame about his furry tendencies or just like I feel like it's equally the that he drew that really gets me. (laughs) Yeah. The next memory is him being forced to hammer a bird, a dead bird. Sure. But Howard continues to keep finding him and kind of getting him back on track of this, the memory deletion process. So they are in Montauk and Clementine wants to go to their house and Joel tries to drag her away in the apartment Mary and Howard start talking. 
Stan steps out, Mary and Howard start making out, and Howard's wife shows up, and Mary learns that Howard and her have had an affair before. I'm just gonna call her MJ, because her name is Mary, so it's the same. (laughs) So... I feel like I would love to see a movie just about, like, MJ's entire, like, progression of this. But also, like, underlying concept of, like, did they have a thing? Or was it, like, he was her boss and is in a weird position of authority and abuse of power and he had her memory erased so he could continue to do whatever he wanted without repercussions and, like, this could also just possibly exist in the society at the same time where it's just, like, people can just erase your memories and then continue to do shit without any sort of repercussions. And I'm like, it's implied that, like, it was a sort of, like, a fair thing, but, like, he didn't have his memory erased. Yeah, I mean, I think... You can't just have your memories erased because they need to create that map while you are conscious of it. But I mean, Stan could have. I think the him being in a position of power and making her do it is a different argument. Yeah, because she works there. I think if it made her, but strongly encouraged, being like we agreed that this is what we needed to do. Yeah, I don't know. That dynamic is like both so uncomfortable and equally like. I want to know more about, like, said universe where, like, this is not only happening, but then, like, what does MJ remember? Is she able to then, like, remember these? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is, like, debatable, like, what people remember after it. They couldn't have erased all of her memory of him because she obviously still needed to know her boss. Yeah. And also, like, she still has that crush on him. Presumably you erase, like, memories of people, but not, like, associations with them. So, like, you would still emotionally have some sort of familiarity. In the memory, Joel and Clementine are at the bookstore and Clementine gives her I'm not a manic pixie dream girl speech. And, like, the books turn white around her as, like, it's starting to really fade. To which also he was like, I understand, and I wasn't doing that to you, but I still thought that you were going to save my life. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, Joel, Mary, she goes back to the office and ransacks the place and finds her tape and listens to it, where she kind of learns that she did agree to it. So then we go in Joel's memory, we get them meeting for the first time at that party on the beach. And apparently stealing food off of someone's plate isn't rude, it's intimate. (coughs) He then sings the Clementine song to Clem. Clem says that she's going to be gone soon. And so they go to their house, that random house where Clementine breaks in. And the house begins falling apart around them. And the the tide starts coming in. This is also another practical effect. The production team accomplishes by building the corner of a house on the beach and allowing the tide to rise into it. They hired a special team to place the set in the water, but this team refused due to perceived dangers. So the director, (laughs) in response, fired this team and had production, including the actors, producers, place the set in the water. (laughs) Which, like, (laughs) is so problematic. Like, that creates such an unsafe (laughs) film environment. Like, Like, yeah, it looks great, my dude, but... If something went wrong, you would have ended your career. Joel in the house says that he wishes that he stayed the night of the memory. And Clementine says, why don't you stay now? And he says, I can't, like, the memory's done. And so instead they do a pretend goodbye. And Clementine whispers, meet me in Montauk, into his ear. 
and we get the final flashes as all the memories of Clementine disappear. Which is also, like, himself imposing he should go to Montauk to, like, be able to know where she is, etc. How does she know to go to Montauk? No fucking clue. To be fair, <laughs> she, like, she goes other places, too. She, like, she wants to go to the river. Clearly, like, her memory deletion didn't work properly. Yeah. It's not like she was at the river when Joel was at the river. Like, they're both, like, they're both in Montauk. <laughs> That's a far away from New York City. That's yeah. like at least two hours on the train. Yeah. Again, <laughs> <laughs> the entire movie is Joel with a figment of his imagination and somehow it works out for him, but <laughs> Joel wakes up the next day and it's that same first day. On his day. pull-out couch bed. <laughs> Look, he has a mattress though. <laughs> That's So fair. like clearly, probably it was one of the things he got rid of because he bought it with Clementine because he's a man and can't have his own furniture and Clementine was like, how dare you live like this? You're buying a bed frame. Wait, so like that's the extent of like the memories you need to bring back? Say you were like married to someone and like bought a lot of your shit together and then got divorced. Would you have to be like everything in this house? Yeah, probably. Is part of it? Like, (laughs) and then you have to wake up and just go somewhere else? Yeah. Well, you probably, if you like were married, got divorced, you probably would be getting new stuff anyway. I assume doing it the day of the breakup is very rare. I would assume it would be, like, months later (laughs) when you've, like, tried to move on with your life and you're like, I can't, and so then you go and get this person erased. Wild speculation. (laughs) So Joel wakes up. It's the same day that we first saw in the beginning of the movie, except now we get this intercut with the Stan and Mary storyline. So Stan sees Mary. She's quit. And she kind of confronts him and asks if he had anything to do with her memory wipe and he denies it and kind of hints that maybe he knew something, which is obviously lying to her, but like, whatever. She gets into her car and it's revealed that she stole all of the files and tapes from the office. Nice, MJ. We're back at Clementine's apartment where she's getting her tape. So she gets back into the car with Joel and she plays it and he freaks out, kicks her out of the car. And also when you start listening to it and it's like, Ah, you and the stranger dated. Tragically. Horribly. Why would you keep listening to it with him in the car? If I heard my own voice and I had no memory of saying it, I don't think I would be cognizant enough to be like, I need to stop this. I'd be like, what the fuck is going on? That's fair. But I also wouldn't listen to, like, suspicious mystery tape that's like, you don't know me or the fact that this exists with the, like, new stranger I'm trying to date. She didn't know that it was about Joel till she put the tape in. But, like, it's still, like... I, yeah, I wouldn't listen to that tape. Like, I would not listen to a strange tape sent <laughs> to me in the mail. something I'd want to do alone. <laughs> I would probably be like, what the fuck? I'm, actually, it's a lie. I would probably listen to it. I'd be like, this is weird. But I'd, I'd be listen like, to it, but I'd be like, actually, you can drive home. I have a suspicious tape to listen to. <laughs> I don't know. I might be like, well, whoever I'm with, I'd be like, I just found this really suspicious tape. Want to see what's on it? Because you don't know that it's going to be your voice. You don't know what it's going to be. That's fair. If I was mailed a, like a tape cassette today, I would have no way of playing it. Send it to me. I'll put you on speakerphone. I'll play it. What if I'm forgetting <laughs> erasing like, you, a Lindsay? What bitch. if I erased you? <laughs> don't, don't trust her. Remember that podcast? Don't do it. <laughs> I wouldn't know to send it to you if that was the case, though. But, like, circa, like, when we were still in Boston. Yeah, if we, if, <laughs> what if I did this while we were still roommates? <laughs> <laughs> Which is also.
also the case. What if you get into, like, some horrible fight with your roommate, and then you're both like, I'm gonna erase you. I would assume you would move out before you erase someone, because... You can't be like, I feel like there's two different things. So I'm talking more of like, there would be a lot of valid reasons to want to completely erase someone centered in like abuse and trauma that I would understand. Yeah. But I feel like there's also another side of people that are like so petty and unable to deal with things that they would be like, I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it now. And they wouldn't think through like, yeah, I have to move. They'd be like, no. And with a certain amount of money, I'm sure the office would do it. I'm sure when you were like, I want to erase my roommate, they'd be like, okay, you need to live somewhere else before you can do that. And then you'd be like, oh, okay, I'll move. Or you can lie. <laughs> they do it in your house. Yeah, your roommate's not always there. Lucy, like, when you and I shared out. a room, imagine out. some people <laughs> coming in. Okay, but also, like, imagine them having sex over my unconscious body. <laughs> if I came happen, home- but it did. If I came home to people, like, dancing above you while you were unconscious with a machine on your head, I would not know what Getting to do. Getting you erased from <laughs> Yeah, I think I would, like, close the door and then probably the next day be like, hey, Lindsay, who the fuck are you friends with and why? And you'd be like, who are you? And I'd be like, I'm your roommate. Like, what do you think this extra bed is here for? <laughs> I wouldn't think there'd be foul play. I'd be like, the naked dancing is part of the hell. <laughs> what? It makes it work? Just because, like, why wouldn't they be? <laughs> it's a ritual. I don't know. Clementine then goes over to Joel's apartment where he is playing the tape that he received about Clementine. They kind of have this conversation where present Joel, who has forgotten, is kind of trying to contradict past Joel. She's, like, ranting about her hair and how stupid it is. And he's just like, I like your hair. (laughs) Clementine leaves. Joel runs after her and says, wait. And she does her same speech again and says, you'll find things about me that you don't like and I'll grow bored of you and feel trapped. And Joel just goes, okay. There's a shot of them running on the beach in Montauk. And that is Eternal Sunshine of the spotless mind. There's equally, like, a part where, like, he's, like, saying something and Clementine is just kind of like, I don't do that. And Joel's like, yeah, I believe you. It's like, why are you also believing this stranger compared to, like, a past version of yourself? But, I mean, you would find yourself more trustworthy. B, I actually kind of take that back because if I heard a past tape of myself, I'd probably be like, I I don't even know. I don't know who I'd believe. <laughs> I wouldn't trust anyone in this situation. I would just be like, I'm just gonna leave entirely. (laughs) The situation is, Lindsay, you're hearing a voice, your voice telling you that I'm a shitty roommate. (laughs) And then you're also like, I'm not a shitty roommate. But I'm like, I trust you. But I also trust me. I would just move out. (laughs) That would be the reason that I move out. (laughs) Thank you. Procedure. Memoirs of a Teenage Amnesiac. My shitty tweet is, quote, story of a teenage girl who literally throws herself down the stairs to avoid dating her friend, but the power of platonicness exceeds even memory. (laughs) Which, I wrote platonicness, and like, Google Docs didn't correct it, and I'm like, this can't be a word. Sounds like a word to me. I like how you said tweet, quote, like you quoted yourself. (laughs) (laughs) My tweet is, when a girl goes through a traumatic event and is understandably changed by this, men get upset. 
most of my notes are being like, she literally had a traumatic brain injury and lost four years of her life. She's allowed to do things. So much of it is just like, what the fuck? No, stop. Like, I'm like, she's allowed to quit yearbooks. She's allowed to do this. She's allowed to be like, don't kiss me, Ben. I don't know. The director, because I did not <laughs> take my own notes. His name is Hans Canosa. He is from Holden, Massachusetts. And I was, like, trying to look up, because I just wanted to know, like, why was this, like, a Japanese movie when the novel version of it is very American? And I was like, well, maybe the director is Japanese. He's not. He's a white dude. But he, like, first off, like, really doesn't, hasn't done much. But, like, his background that's, like, plastered on everything that's about him is the wildest, like, three sentences it's, Kenosa was born in Holden, Massachusetts, USA, where he received a fundamentalist Christian education from his parents. Because their beliefs did not support films, Kenosa did not go, go to a movie theater until he was 17 years old. He chose to attend Harvard University, for which he was disinherited by his parents. Who gets disinherited for going to Harvard? I have no words. Yeah. Is this because... We didn't know that the other movie was directed by the director yes. of Shrek, and you were like, that again, we need to change that. <laughs> I'm still upset by that. Postgrad <sighs> and Shrek, who would have thought they had anything in common? Not me. If only Michael Keaton and J.K. Simmons were in Shrek. They could have been, and you wouldn't know. <laughs> they could have been, and I. <laughs> if they are to this day, I still don't know. <laughs> Opening scene. There is a montage of people taking a bunch of school photos, but the story begins with Naomi tripping on a full cup of coffee that is just placed at the edge of the stairs, and at the risk of breaking her nice yearbook camera, falls down to, like, catch it, and is knocked unconscious. She remembers nothing of the incident and thinks it's 2005, which also, uh, to mentally live in 2005 right now, <laughs> but is missing the last four years of her life. The person who took Naomi to the hospital tells her, quote, I told the paramedics I was your boyfriend so you wouldn't be alone, end quote, but I'm also not your boyfriend. I'm also not your friend. I just want to be your yeah. boyfriend, which <laughs> you can't do that. Naomi and her dad try and go over what she can and can't remember, and then she jokes about forgetting her mom died, and then her dad just, like, doesn't really understand how to go about that, and was like, it was longer than four years ago, and then she's like, haha, just kidding. Which, fucked up thing this movie jokes about, as well as, like, handling death in general, mental health related or not, which, also a lot of problematic yep. aspects of mental health. So, in the book, Naomi is also an adopted kid like that's a huge plot point of this whole thing is that she like doesn't feel like she belongs that she like doesn't have a past because she's an orphan and they just like completely got rid of all of that they very much keep the tone of i didn't have a past in a very like lobster-esque way if she's like usually doesn't have a past and i don't have a past so like we mm -hmm. can date because like again i haven't read this book since it came out but the name of the yearbook isn't Futurama or whatever the fuck it's called in this. But, like, it's, like, the name of their school, like, 
yearbook it's like the whatever yearbook like but the cover is like a plain white text but they do it so like the whole thing doesn't fit on one line there's like one word that's on the second line and like that's like this huge thing of like oh yeah like you we really liked it because it's that's what called an orphan so it was like your little homage and I was like excuse me like I remember being like what the fuck uh <laughs> um Maxine Mariah apparently <laughs> Her best friend comes from calling Naomi a true yearbook film kid risking her life for the camera. And she's like, oh, okay, so like that other person wasn't my boyfriend, so you're my boyfriend. Which I feel like he could have pretty convincingly been like, yes, and then this movie would have been over. Except then Ace would have broken into her bedroom and she would have been like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> but where I was like, LOL, your boyfriend would never come visit you in the hospital. He's not like that. Which, red flag like number, number one. 17, red flag. What do you mean he wouldn't come visit you in the hospital? But Naomi's like, oh, do you know Yuji, the seemingly random dude that pretended to be your boyfriend? But he's like, oh, he just moves here. Knows nothing about anyone. Also a red flag. <laughs> And if I'm like, who is this person that took me to the hospital and none of my friends know them? And also, like, pretended to be my boyfriend and almost tried to, like, had the plan to convince me with brain injury that I was his girl. Like, that's really fun. Like, yeah, he didn't go through with it, but he thought about it. (laughs) Naomi goes home from the hospital and finds out that her and her actual boyfriend are tennis stars of the school. And as she's falling asleep, Ace, her boyfriend, the fucking name of her fucking tennis player boyfriend, which is stupid, is like, climbs through her window. when they're named Love and Forty. <laughs> At first when you said in you, and I was like, who did I name? <laughs> Ace climbs through her window. A trope that I didn't consciously realize wasn't every single movie until now. Despite knowing that she was just in an accident where she loses her memory, kisses her anyway, and then is like, oh, you don't remember me? Like, no, Ace, you ain't special. She lost four years of her life. he specifically says, I didn't think it was possible you could have forgotten me. So he knows that she doesn't know him. And it was like, but I'm gonna kiss her and make it better. We're not doing this meet me in Montauk shit. You're not a good enough person for that to even be an option. (laughs) Which neither was Clementine. And then he panic uses tongue. (laughs) (laughs) But then Ace, as you said, was like, sorry, I shouldn't have used tongue when I kissed you. No, you shouldn't have. (laughs) And he's like, I should have waited for you to remember me. Like, yes, obviously. (laughs) Regardless, he gives her tennis sweatbands and leaves. Next scene, Naomi goes back to school and Alice, who is Emma Roberts, is the only person in this entire movie, honestly, who's straight up just like, here's a tip. You don't have a memory. My name is Alice because you don't know that, obviously, another thing that you don't know is that we're not friends. So in case you're not sure, just know that we're not. (laughs) Yeah. Naomi goes to the greenhouse in the school as if this is High School Musical and Yuji follows her and gives her his jacket because she's cold- and shirt and then is being like sweet and like i'll walk you to class and then as soon as he gets there is like excuse me you're wearing my jacket you should have dressed warmer fuck you naomi then says your book is lame why do we do it and mariah is like you'll figure it out you love it you made the yearbook theme futurama to which i was like oh futurama like this show exists in this universe 
but it's actually future and camera, which instead I hate. And also he says a good yearbook can create a good school. My senior yearbook was such trash garbage. We had entire sections, like I think it was the entire sophomore section, instead of actual quotes would just be insert student quote here. Like that was printed in the final yearbook. (laughs) For the entire, it was like 20 pages. Oh, that's so good. (laughs) While Mariah's mom is driving Naomi and him home, they see Yuji walking and Naomi forces him to be picked up. And as soon as he's out of the car, Mariah's like, oh, by the way, at his old school, he stalked someone and did drugs and they got a restraining order. But Mariah continues to be like, want to know how bad he is? They gave him the nickname Crazy Yuji and Naomi's like, that's not a nickname. It's just an adjective before Which his name. Which is fair. That clever. <laughs> Which is fair. But I love that she's like, this whole thing doesn't matter because that's not a nickname. <laughs> I did write, oh, look, the romantic interest is a stalker. All movies are Twilight. <laughs> There's then like three seconds of like a racist Mexican interlude scene for absolutely no reason at all. And then continues to a party of Naomi getting both getting drunk and headbanging to music, which I feel like are two things that you should not be doing with a head injury. One thousand percent not. On that note, she faints. And then her dad and his fiance then pick Naomi up and she's like, oh, you have a fiance? And then he's like, oh, you're drunk underage? And then they both kind of evade each other's topics until they get home. Ace then sneaks into her room. And is like, oh, by the way, I know I ditched you at that party. I'm sorry, but I wanted to explain my lame gift of the tennis sweatbands that he gave her when he first snuck into the room of someone that didn't remember him. (laughs) And he's like, listen, you're the first girl that's, quote, not like other girls, end quote, TM, (laughs) to like me. And then when I kissed you, I took off your tennis armbands, which why, and lost them. So I got you these new ones, which obviously why would she remember that? It's not even a good enough story that I would probably remember it even if I consciously had my memory. (laughs) He's so completely baffled that she doesn't remember. Like, no shit, she has a brain injury, dude. Like, she doesn't remember anything. (laughs) Naomi then kisses him and then he's like, oh, okay. I don't want to pressure you, but, like, can we have sex again? Because we did have sex, so, like, you should still do it. And Naomi's like, um, no. To which Ace says, but homecoming is in three weeks. So Naomi's like, we can go to homecoming and reevaluate. He's like, I don't want to pressure you, but also we're having sex in three weeks. Like, that is the definition of pressure, Ace. Naomi then cuts her hair off herself very well because new Naomi, Look, new hair. I relate to having a crisis and being like, I need to cut my hair immediately. This is a quarantine-friendly <laughs> movie. This, this is a quarantine-friendly movie. Minus all of the dates that she goes on and the international travel. That part's not quarantine-friendly. I guess, mm, I don't know if I'd say Eternal Sun. Uh, I guess, like, Eternal Sunshine is, like, mainly quarantine-friendly because, like, most of it happens in the But there's two strangers over at his apartment. There's three strangers. There's four strangers. But, like, they all live and work together. But they can't be... So, like, they're bringing the same germ community over. On the plus side, neither of these movies are cop propaganda. There's no cops in either of these. There's no cops in the school. systems that would 
uphold like the need for well this movie didn't take place in america so may i have no idea of but japan's yeah this is like an international private school i would assume but there are no cops in their school they get into that fight yeah and is it an adult that breaks up the fight i honestly can't remember or is it just you guys hurt naomi and they're like oh shit we'll stop (laughs) yeah i think it's that (laughs) i don't think there's any adults But then they do community service. (laughs) Alice seemingly out of nowhere, because as very explicitly announced, they are not friends, tells Naomi to audition for Hamlet. I'm pretty sure Naomi then does not even audition, but Alice is like, you cut your hair, that's a Hamlet move, you're Hamlet. They're not doing Hamlet, though. What are they doing then? (laughs) Oh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Oh, that makes much more sense. <laughs> yeah. Because there's another part later on where Naomi's like, yeah, it's not someone's that big like, I didn't know you were, yeah, and I'm like, you're the lead! <laughs> Yuji is the videographer, so enter weird romantic tension from here on out. Next scene, Naomi and Ace are at homecoming, and he's like, you're wearing the same dress as last year, so all these pictures will look the same. Okay, Ace, you had much more mental space than Naomi did to worry to worry about an outfit, so you make the fucking fun outfit choice. Yeah. Also, like, he's so rude about her hair. Like, he keeps being like, I liked it longer. Then buy her a wig. Like, you can grow your <laughs> own hair. Like, it's not your hair. You don't have the right to hate her hair. Let her react to her injuries. Mariah is also like, that's the same dress you wore as last year. Which, how does everyone know and remember her dress that I know, it's not like it's this, like, remarkable, like, one-of-a-kind dress. It's a basic floor-length black dress. Ace then takes Naomi to his house and is like, you want to know what we did last homecoming? We had sex. And then opens 20 condoms that he has with him now. And uses... 700 sports metaphors that are all terrible. After homecoming last year, we put one over the net. How about this year we can celebrate a rematch? Ace. Terrible. Genuinely, at first, I was like, is that the first time they played tennis together? And then he grabs the 20 condoms, and I'm like, nope. Why did I even? Why did I even think maybe differently? He then immediately tries to take off her dress, and Naomi's like, I'm not having sex with you. First she says- And Asaph's why? Because she doesn't know you. Yeah. But like, first she says like, oh, like, I need to put this on later. Like, put this back on. Don't break it. And I'm like, oh, are you now gonna have sex with him because you feel obligated? But then she's immediately like, no, we're not having sex. And I was like, all right. Good for you for standing your ground. Literally, except for Alice, nobody in this goddamn movie acknowledges that she's forgotten four years of her life. They need those little cards from Eternal Sunshine. But it's just like... But, like, she says it! Instead of this person has been erased, it's like, please keep in mind, you are erased from this person. Yeah. Please proceed with that knowledge. But, like, she keeps like, no, I don't remember that. And they're just like, oh, but how about this? No, I don't remember that. They're like, why? But, like, you should remember this, though. No. But then Naomi asked, what do they have in common? And... Ace starts to, like, bench press is not the right word, but, like, work out on his, ex- on his like, <laughs> weightlifting machine? machine that's in his room. And I, he's like, I don't know, tennis, school, which, if school is an answer, sheesh. And then it's like, <laughs> I don't know, normal reasons, you're hot, okay. And then he's like, we used to talk, which, honestly, I don't even know. What would y'all even talk about, regardless if they break up? school. <laughs> 
her being how hot. she's hot. <laughs> She says that she needs to give her time, her hair time to grow, which is like, <laughs> <laughs> so good. She's like, we can take a break. We'll talk when my hair is long. The play happens. After the play, Yuji invites her to his job. And then he's like, remember in the hospital when you said that you didn't want to kiss me till I was okay with it? Well, it would have been okay then. Which, would it? You legitimately did not know him. And I feel like if he just tried to kiss you, you would not be okay with it. Like, it was okay with you because you thought, oh, he said he's my boyfriend and he's attractive. Ergo, I would be okay with it. (laughs) Then Naomi's like... In case you were curious, it'd still be okay now. Which he makes out with her, which he's still at work, actively on the job. These movies are the same. (laughs) Next scene, Naomi returns Yuji's shirt and her dad is like, why did you do that? Are Are you dating him? And Naomi's like, strictly speaking, no. Which, not even not strictly speaking. You're still not dating. He kissed you once and you intimately touched him. But Lindsay, that's how you would answer. (laughs) Are you dating this person? Strictly speaking, no. But that's how I'd answer if I more or less were dating someone. Yeah. If I were at like her level of I made out with someone once and they touched my hand and you asked if I were dating, I'd be like, hell no. If I I were like basically dating in every other aspect except for like name, I would say strictly speaking, no. This is, these are the facts. Sorry, as I was saying that, I realized I was saying the same words (laughs) as that vine of the guy that was like, in every aspect except physical, I am a wolf. Next scene, she's on a date with Yuji and they're on his motorcycle. Yuji asks her, you don't care where we're going? And is more or less like, what if I'm the bad guy? What if I'm the villain? Which is Twilight. (laughs) To which Naomi responds more or less, but I trust you. They go sledding on the school steps and then they go to dinner. And Yuji reveals to her that a lot of the rumors about him exist because he has a lot of mental health issues which were very bad at his school last year which led to a suicide attempt i don't know where the expulsion came from but here we are in school the next day naomi is warned that she has a d in her photography class and is at the risk of failing which is now when i want to go over how the school is working does she get no leniency for not remembering anything from the past four years she at one point says that she remembers, like, math and biology. Like, she sounds like she remembered, but she clearly didn't remember French. But also, was she just, like, expected to go back to school as a normal student like, yeah, immediately she after? shouldn't have been. Like, that is, is so many times it comes up, like, why is she expected to, like, she shouldn't have gone back to school. Like, she should have been homeschooled. Yes. But she is told to make it work. So, Naomi tells Mariah that she's quitting yearbook because she is failing her classes and has a brain injury and he's like that's bullshit it's just because you want to hang out with your new boyfriend which in part it is so fair but she's also failing her classes and has a brain injury right then says you only like him because he's mysterious he doesn't have to be so depressed we've all lost family members which Okay, one of the examples of poorly handled mental health. Mm -hmm. But they fight, and Naomi says that she's not the same person that he knew, which, fair, 
she lost four years of her life and doesn't know how she would have acted or grown in that time. In Eternal Sunshine, they lost their memories of each other and still found each other and still liked each other. <laughs> For unknown reasons. Alice Clementine and Montauk. It's, it's a It's a conspiracy. Maybe she actually, she moved to Montauk. <laughs> <laughs> That's why she wants to sleep in his apartment because it's more convenient to already be in the city. Next scene, it is Christmas. And Yuji gets her fish. Don't give pets his presents. Bad, bad, bad. <laughs> Sid, one of the fish, then dies. Like, almost immediately. <laughs> like, that's why you shouldn't give pets his presents, because now she would feel so guilty. Her goth fish just died, which but symbolized Nancy's her alive. emo boyfriend. <laughs> I should get a fish to symbolize my emo boyfriend. I don't have an emo <laughs> boyfriend. <laughs> But I should get a fish to symbolize him. You One get the day. fish and then you have to date someone emo and be like, oh yeah, this fish symbolizes you. Oh, when did you get it? Six years ago. <laughs> Usually then comes to help Naomi with her film project, which is them getting old cameras and throwing them in the air, breaking like 20 plus cameras for this film project, which like the concept, cool retelling the pictures of her injury by like physically making the cameras do what she also did but breaking a lot of cameras mariah then comes and for the first time in this whole goddamn movie is like wow naomi you should like be careful with your head you should be wearing a helmet and all the characters are like hmm, maybe you're right he's like because you fell and then naomi says i didn't fall i took a dive and i remembered it bum bum post break Naomi sees Mariah in the hall and is like, hey, how are you? Like, I haven't seen you in a little while. And Mariah responds with, not good since I'm doing two rolls of this fucking yearbook job, which, okay, one, you can pull in other people. Two, she could have quit the yearbook just because she wanted to and who the fuck cares, but she's also quitting because she's failing her classes because she can't remember things. He then also seemingly says that he started dating someone, so he's been busy. Next scene... Ace finds Naomi in the hall and is like, don't let your unrequited love for me keep you from trying out for tennis. And Naomi's like, I wasn't trying out for tennis. <laughs> but upon seeing Ace talking to her, Yuji then attacks him in the middle of the school day. And when Naomi tries to break them up, Yuji accidentally punches her in the eye. Mariah comes in to pull Naomi out, which means he also gets detention for technically being involved in the fight. He applies to USC, I think for film, and gets in... And goes for, okay. like, a welcome students weekend. Naomi Is that finds it. She finds... In their shared locker. I know. Do you remember at high school when people would share lockers and couples would do that? I did not even use my locker, but it freaked me out when people did. But that place is usually in LA to which he's like I want you to visit and I'll buy your airfare so Naomi flies there she doesn't let her dad know that she's going to LA she just goes yeah. and she's like <laughs> yeah. I have to do something for yearbook like clearly her dad doesn't even know that she's quit yearbook but he leaves her there at the airport for at least two hours after she lands and is like sorry there's traffic in LA which hey, yes Duh, you should have planned for it. To which I said, you can arrive at LAX and be, like, in the traffic of just, like, being at LAX. Like, not even, like, oh, I was on, like, the interstate or the highway and, like, got off the exits. Like, you were, like, past the sign that says LAX, will be over an hour and you're still not at the arrivals gate. Like, it is a hellhole nightmare oh zone. Oh my god. LAX sucks. But Naomi's said, like, I'm excited to go to your school. And Yuji's like, actually, we're not going to my school, we're going surfing. 
to which they go to the beach. And he's like, oh, you know what? We need a surfboard to go surfing, which I don't have. So they sit at the beach instead, to which Yuji is like, actually, there's a surfboard at my dad's house. I'll be back in an hour. Doesn't let her come. Seemingly many hours later, Yuji comes back without a surfboard and was like, sorry, I took so long. I went to Marilyn Monroe's grave. And then all these people kissed her grave, and I was upset because no one's kissed my brother's grave because no one knows who he is. And I wanted to go and visit, but I forgot where his grave was. And I'm late because I spent hours searching for it, to which Naomi thinks that that's the appropriate time to tell Yuji that she loves him. And then they go back to his house where it turns out that he's been all alone and he says that he's too depressed to talk and goes to bed. Okay, fun fact. That actually is where Marilyn Monroe is buried, like the cemetery that they show. It's not a tombstone because it's like in the wall, but like it's her like grave marker because she's like behind it. That is pink from people kissing it. Like Hugh Hefner, when he died, he got buried there and now his is also pink from lipstick. That cemetery is like- No one kissed my cemetery. No one kissed my cemetery. All of it. No one kissed my grave. (laughs) But like cemetery is- You can't wander for hours. Like it is literally like not even like a block big. Essentially there's like a little like the indoor part where like Marilyn Monroe is buried. There's like a couple like walls of people. And then there's like the tiniest amount of- lawn space where people are buried and also there's no way that his brother was buried there that is like complete bullshit listen we don't know who his brother is yeah i guess he, if he's someone really <laughs> famous that part bothered me and also like i was like is it problematic that i could immediately identify that this is the correct <laughs> burial site that Marilyn <laughs> i was like it's fine but my point is, is he couldn't have wandered there for hours like he could look at every gravestone in there and be done in 20 minutes naomi's dad picks her up And it's obviously, like, you're grounded because you flew to L.A. without telling anyone. But, like, he doesn't even seem that mad. Like, he gets over it pretty quickly. Yeah, I'm assuming that he's, like, more worried than mad, but... Naomi then says that she, too, needed to get away because she's starting to remember who she was. And Yuji likes me because we both don't have a past. And if we don't have that in common, then what's the point? That's just as bad as being like, what do you have in common? I don't know, tennis, school? What do you have in common? (laughs) We don't have a pass. What? Next scene, Naomi finds out that Yuji has been hospitalized, and Naomi asks Mirai, because he's her best friend, if he'd go visit him in the hospital with her. To which Mirai says, why would I do that? Dude, you're her best friend. I'm sorry she doesn't want to sleep with you and quit one activity and still continue to try to be your friend. More specifically, what he says is, quote, why would I have to do that for you? End quote. And then gives her a mixtape of artists who have died by suicide, which is so fucked up. It's so fucked. It's, like, not a good joke to be like, oh, your boyfriend attempted suicide? Here's an artist, like, there's a playlist that's, like, I forget what the exact title is. It's, like, songs to go visit my best friend's crazy boyfriend. Or something that, like, uses yeah. the word, like, crazy boyfriend. I'm like, they visit Yuji. Naomi tells him, quote, remember when you told me that if I remembered everything about my past, I should leave you? Well, I remember everything about my past. Actually, I did two months ago. But, like, I still don't want to leave you. And then Yuji and Mariah are both like, you lied? Which, she didn't lie. She just didn't tell them that she remembered everything. But to be fair, I mean, I am on her side and I would do the exact same thing if I remembered my best friend kissed me. Like, and I'd be like, mm. I would just pretend yeah. that I didn't remember it. Yep. <laughs> I would also purposely be like, dive no down some know. stairs to avoid <laughs> talking to him ever again. <laughs> 
the more we watch, the more I'm like, uh, I too would be like, nope. This is how I'm getting myself out of this situation. I mean, yeah, my old go-to thing was just to completely move. Now I'm like, uh, where do I, I go? I have a job. I'm employed. I can't. I'm an adult that can't just leave the city. I mean, now the thing is... Fake memory loss. quarantine. I can't see you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to send people cards. It's like, please note, Brooke has deleted you from their memory. Yuji says he wishes that he were the one with amnesia, but now realizes that he needs to accept his past instead of just pretending that it didn't happen. Yeah. (laughs) Instead of being like, past what past? You don't have a past. I don't have a past. We should date. And he wishes that he met Naomi at a time where he had this figured out. On the way back, Mirai says that he came because he was promised dinner for this trip, which, asshole. So they get burgers, and Mirai says, so you remember everything. And he's like, now we need to acknowledge it, that in the moment on the stairs, I realized that you wanted to be very platonic. When I told you I had feelings for you, you more or less threw yourself down the stairs, forgot I existed, met Yuji, and quit yearbook. But that's not a problem anymore. I don't love you, dot dot dot. Not that much. Yuji also then sends a postcard that says forgive me, which Oh, I, I thought interpreted... it said forget me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because I read it as forgive me, which I was like, oh. And then Naomi's like, that's uncool. I guess we're breaking up. And I'm like, oh, I I just, like, genuinely didn't know what happened and was like, they're all being really cool, so I guess I'll look at it optimistically, in which he's just saying, we should break up and not anything worse, considering he was just in the hospital for a suicide attempt, but saying forget me makes a lot more sense. Yeah, he says forget me. And just the fact that she gets dumped via postcard, (laughs) you know those websites that write postcards postcards for you? I'm gonna send a breakup one. If someone sent me a postcard, I'd be like, actually, that's fine. Yeah. That's clever. Like, I'd be like, you know what? <laughs> I now need to Fair kill play. my emo fish, but it's it's clever. <laughs> Mariah gets pneumonia and is in the hospital and is seemingly fine, but asks Naomi to rejoin the yearbook, which she then does, because there would be no editor. The nurse literally says, oh, his lungs aren't functioning, but he's not dying. And I'm like, that's the definition of dying. What? <laughs> Naomi then says, oh, the yearbook turned out great. I'll give one to Winnie, who's his girlfriend. And Mariah's like, no, I want you to bring it. And Naomi's like, truly someone else from yearbook would be faster to get it to you. And he's like, no, I want you to bring it. So she does and discovers that he broke up with Winnie. The movie then ends with the same scene as the intro. Very similar to Eternal Sunshine. But instead of diving down the stairs, Naomi walks down them with Mirai. And they're like, we don't really know how it happened, but I think we're dating now. The end. Which movie did you prefer? Oh, (laughs) obviously not the amnesiac one. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, obviously I like Eternal Sunshine more, but when I was obsessed with shitty teen YA books, when I was like in middle school, I think I would have liked this more because it was more dramatic and romantic and like excessive. And like as a seventh grader, that's all I cared about. So I feel like what would be 
my ideal would be I want to see the Eternal Sunshine universe, but like from MJ's perspective. Stop calling her MJ. <laughs> this isn't a Spider-Man crossover. Her name is Mary. <laughs> but to see her entire like how did her thing with her boss actually go down? What did she think that her life was? How does it go after after yeah, like, like I want to know blowing the up this company? What's the repercussion of like all of these people? Like like what happens to all of these people? Like do their memories come watch, back? Or are they like so permanently gone? I'd watch the procedural TV show about her having to help various people that she just abruptly mailed Ooh. their memories. <laughs> And, like, having to, like, help them work through that trauma. I'm sure a lot of them also aren't just, like, this shitty relationship ended. Like, I'm sure a lot of them are actually, like, very traumatic events that they're like, I don't want this to be a part of my life. If you like this episode, share it with... Doesn't matter who you're gonna share it with. We we already forgot. Ha! Back to that! We got banter! Ha! Or... Find us on social media. We are at Film Squids Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Visit us at our website at filmkidsgiantsquids.com. This podcast was recorded by Brooke Hoppy and Lindsay Bubble. Intro music is by the band Polly Action. Transition music is by Satine. Editing by Lindsay Bubble. Until next time, Squids.